I'm glad you're here on this 80-degree day in March. Uh, I don't know if this is why you live in Georgia, but it's, it's happening. And uh, don't worry, it'll snow sometime next couple weeks. The, um, man, we are, we are so glad to be here, so glad to be really in a place that we call home. And uh, somebody said to me, welcome home today. And I just thought, oh, it's, it's just fantastic. I mean, this journey that we're on planting Take Hold Church in Edinburgh, Scotland, there are days where you feel homeless, and, um, but that's okay. We believe we've kind of taken hold of, of something. We heard a pastor say, home is a journey. And so we know that, that God is with us every step of the way. And so the Lord's doing some amazing things. Uh, we are in a year of transition, my family and I. We're, I was just in Scotland for about three weeks, prayer walking, seeking the Lord, meeting with other pastors and, and leaders. And, and God said clearly to me, he said, talk to me before you talk to anybody else. And so that's been the approach, and the Lord has been opening up some doors, and he's unfolding some stories that we believe are just miracles in the making, and so we can't wait to, to see all that God does. We don't have a clue what God's going to do. We're kind of excited to find out ourselves. And, uh, and so you can go to takeholdchurch.com, and uh, you can watch this story unfold. You can follow along an email, and I really believe as you do, you'll be watching a, a church be planted in, in real time. And I just wanted to take a moment and say, I was, I was uh, texting and talking to some of the team here this week, you know, in this year of transition, we're going to other churches and, and recruiting other partners and asking them to support this work and, and to help fund us and, and that kind of thing. But it's just, as I stand here today, I just need you to know, and so many of you have, have supported us and helped us along the way and, and are continuing to, but this church is really the first one to make a, a multi-year commitment to us kind of, kind of behind the scenes and I'll just tell you, nobody's going to beat it. Um, this is such a generous church, and uh, you're sending us out in such a great way. And if somebody does beat it, I will come back and I will challenge the spiritual life of the leadership here, and I will call on everything I need to, because I know how competitive the men and women here are, because I'm one of them. And, uh, and so, um, but we, we just couldn't be more grateful. And uh, as so many of you are praying for us, um, I just want to ask if you would, um, we are going to take really a couple week hiatus from what we're doing, but it's, it's a part of the journey to help my wife get healthy in, in some areas. She has been dealing with, uh, many of you follow her online and know she's been dealing with skin cancer for years and years, and she's got a, a pretty big procedure tomorrow that we hope is going to give her a reprieve for the next seven to 10 years of dealing with that. And uh, so I ask you to pray for my wife, Angela, as, uh, as you pray for us, and uh, we would certainly be grateful. But I thought since we were all together, it would be maybe a good opportunity to pray um, again for, and I'm sure you already are, but let's do it all together. There is war in Europe, and uh, we just never imagined it would, it would go this far. And so can we take a moment as a body, as a family here at Westridge, and just unite our hearts, and let's pray for peace today. Let's pray for the people of Ukraine and uh, let's pray that God will bring breakthrough in this situation. Let's pray together. Father God, uh, there is power in your name, and there's power when the people of God gather together and to pray. And so, God, we don't want to leave anything left unsaid or undone. And so, God, we seek your face today for the people of Ukraine. God, we ask for protection. We ask that the Prince of Peace would reign. God, we don't understand at all times. We don't know all that's happening, but you do. You know every life. You know every hair on every single head. God, we ask that you would break through, that there would be peace, that people whose hearts appear to be far from you would be drawn to you. God, we don't know how breakthrough will come here. We don't know how peace will reign, but you do, and we're confident 
that you are up to good things. God, we know that you win and that we win with you and that tyrants and dictators do not win. But God, we're asking for peace and safety and protection for those who need it today and provision for those who need it today. And we will thank you and trust and know that you are working in the midst of all that's going on. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder if you've ever doubted God. I wonder if you've ever had a season in your life, a moment in your life where you have doubted what he's up to. And, and maybe it's come from watching the news, but truly when we really doubt him, it probably comes from something that's happening in your own life. I mean, you're bound to have been sitting in a moment at some point where you, you lost a job or there was a health diagnosis or something happened and you wondered, where is God? I mean, for many people, it gets really personal in a moment of grief. I would say for all of us, it gets really personal in a moment of grief. God, how would you allow this? How would you take them? You want to believe that God is a loving God and a good father, but most likely there's been moments where he feels like he's so far off, he's impersonal, and he's just toying with you. That's how you feel. It's not reality, but it's probably how you feel. And then in those moments when we come in here and, and we worship and, and maybe you lift your hands, we lift our hearts, and you wonder, is all this for real or, or is church just a joke? Is worship and the word and groups and serving and generosity and mission, is, is this all worth it? I mean, it just feels frivolous. Maybe the skeptics are right. Maybe Christians are just people who are weak-minded and we're using religion to just kind of comfort ourselves and to cope and to help ourselves be able to deal with life. And in the core issue of doubt, what we are really wondering about is this. Maybe God is not who we thought he was. Maybe God is not who we thought he was. And if he's not, then who am I? And what difference does it make what I do with my life? We're finishing up a study on Jonah today, and we're going to get to Jonah chapter 4 in just a few moments. We're going to go back and forth a little bit in the book of Jonah. And I just want you to know, as we study and try to answer these questions today, we're going to use a little bit of reverse psychology to answer these questions, because Jonah's a mess. I mean, I hope you have figured that out by now. And so if you're going to figure anything out through the book of Jonah, you kind of got to look at it in reverse. You see, Jonah has known all along who God is, and for him, it's a problem. Jonah knows exactly who God is. So just to catch us up for just a moment, I mean, I'm sure you're here, sure you've followed along or know some of the story, but if I could take us back to Jonah chapter 1 for just a moment, just for how we got here. And I want to take you, if I could, in between verses 15 and 17 of, of Jonah chapter 1, I just want you to use your imagination for just a moment, because often we read the Bible so quickly, we, we kind of lose what's going on. So Jonah has tried to, of course, run from God. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is about 500 miles this way. And Jonah buys a ticket to go 2,500 miles this way to the furthest end of the earth that he could come up with and buy a ticket for is basically what Jonah's doing. And while he's on the ship, this ship, he, he goes down. He's just probably exhausted from anxiety and disobedience and running from God. So he falls asleep in the middle of a storm that is so bad that it scares these sailors who are on board. And so these sailors, they start throwing things from the ship. That's not working. And so they start asking everybody, hey, who is your God? Who is your God? Who is your God? And they just start trying to pray to all these different false gods. It's not working. It's not working. Hey, we're missing somebody. Where's Jonah? Well, he's, he's asleep. He's asleep in the middle of all this. This is unbelievable. 
So they wake Jonah up and they said, hey, at the beginning of the voyage, you said that you were running from your God, but can we ask who your God is? And Jonah basically says, well, my God's the one who made everything, including all of this. And they're like, you didn't tell us. You didn't tell us you were running from that God. What do we do? Throw me overboard, is what Jonah says. They didn't do it. They start to try to row and try to rescue him on their own. I mean, these people in this moment, this is, we're watching and reading in Jonah 1 the conversion experience of these pagan sailors. And finally, they agree with Jonah, okay, here's what we're going to do. We are going to just toss you overboard. And they do. And these men now have basically come to faith in God. And the scripture says that among these formerly pagan sailors, a worship service breaks out. As soon as they throw Jonah overboard, the seas get calm. That's what they're worshiping about. They're worshiping God. That's where we read too quickly because we want to get to the fish. Hang on a second about the fish, okay? There's some time here. I don't know how long. There's some time here where Jonah is bobbing like a cork in the Mediterranean Sea. And he's hearing people worship God. I mean, whatever they're singing, he can hear it. They are so loud. They're praising him. And they get farther and farther and farther and farther. And the ship gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller in the distance. And there's Jonah, bobbing like a cork. And he's got to be thinking to himself. It figures. God is exactly who I thought he was. Jonah knows now that he's on his way to Nineveh. He just doesn't know how he's going to get there. But he knows he's going because God is exactly who he thought he was. And then he feels, as has happened to other people throughout history, and you can read and, and Google some of these stories. They're pretty amazing. Then he feels a bump, and everything goes dark. And he finds himself inside this fish on his way to Nineveh because God is exactly who he thought he was. You see, the fish story from the book of Jonah, if you haven't heard it before or studied it before, I hope you understand that the fish is not punishment. The fish is mercy. It's a ride. It's how God is getting him from one place to the next, which is why Jonah, from the belly of a fish, can pray and acknowledge that God is exactly who he thought he was, and when he is vomited up on dry land, God is exactly who he thought he was, and that is Jonah's problem. He doesn't want God to be who he knows him to be. And then the people of Nineveh begin to repent. We'll come back to this in just a moment. And that's, for Jonah, that's a problem. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, that the people repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is what Jonah did not want to have happen, that these people would confess their sin, that they would repent and turn toward God, and that God would relent. But there's something really, really important here. This goes back to two different stories that happen in the life of Moses where God describes exactly who he is to his people and he proves it. And Jonah surely would know the stories 
and he doesn't want what's happened in the past to happen to Nineveh. Many people have a problem with the God who relents, with the God who says, you know what? I'm going to give favor and mercy in this moment. Quite honestly, it's an attribute of God that's hard to reconcile with his sovereignty. It's the same word that's used in Genesis. When God looks out on the earth on Genesis chapter 6, and it says that he is grieved in his heart, he's consoling himself with the wickedness that's going on on the earth, and then he sends Noah to provide a rescue in the midst of a flood that he would send. But there's two stories from the life of Moses. It's the same word that's used in a story in Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus 32, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he takes Joshua with him. He goes up for so long that the people begin to doubt he would ever come back. So this caused the people to build their own false god. They built a golden calf so they could have something that they could see. And God is so frustrated, a righteous anger towards the people. God, in his anger, says to Moses, listen, we're going to start over again, and we're going to start over with you and your family. Now, if God says that to me, I think that's pretty cool. Okay, you can start over with me, but that's not what Moses goes with. He says to God, remember your promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God, what would the world say about you if you wipe out these people? And then the scripture says this, that God relented from, his, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is a verse that many of you know or maybe you've questioned or talked about in a coffee house somewhere. God changed his mind. How is that even possible? Can I just say, I don't know why there's so much debate about God changing his mind. Because God's a father. He's a perfect father. He, he's, a, he's a good father. I'm a father. I understand changing my mind. And as a father, I reserve the right to be inconsistent. I reserve the right to distribute mercy in spite of stupidity. Now, I'm not calling my boy stupid, but you understand what I'm saying. I also reserve the right to follow through on my word, even if you don't like it. I reserve the right to show grace and mercy when it's undeserved. I reserve the right to do what is best for you. And as a parent or mentor or guardian, that is how you imitate, the God, uh, imitate God for those you're investing your life into. And this is who Jonah knows God to be. Here's who he is. The God who, who is always going to do what is best and what is right. And then in verse 1 and 2 of Jonah chapter 4, this displeased Jonah exceedingly. What a guy. That repentance has happened. That revival has broken out. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I tried to get away from you. This is why I tried to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a God, gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In order to confront some, the moments of doubt and uncertainty about who God is, we have to remember and look back and wonder, has God proven that he is who he says he is. Jonah knows exactly who God is because God has described himself to his people. And Jonah knows the description. Every Christ follower should have what I'm about to share with you absolutely memorized. 
as much as you know that God is the I am, that he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, he gave his name for the first time to Moses, that I am, the ever-present one, Yahweh. But he also gave to, God a, gave to Moses a description about himself in a moment of Moses' weakness. Because Moses gets frustrated with the people on one of his trips down from Mount Sinai, and he breaks the Ten Commandments. And if I'm God, I'm going, what would you do that for? I mean, for crying out loud. We worked on that for days. I mean, come on, for crying out loud. But here's what God says to Moses. The Lord passed in front of Moses, Exodus chapter 34. Jonah would know the story, and you all need to know this description. This is God speaking about himself. The Lord. The Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness. This is how God defines himself. He could have said, I'm all-powerful. I'm all-knowing. I'm the Alpha, the Omega. He could have said all of these intimidating things, but when God defines himself, instead of telling us how terrible and powerful he is, rather he says, I'm compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, I'm abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness. Jonah knew exactly who God is, and that is exactly who he did not want him to be. When the spies come back from the land of Canaan, from looking at the promised land, and, and Tim gave a bad report, and they decide that the, the people decide that they're not going to take the land, God once again looks at Moses and says, Moses, I think we should just start over, and I, just, I will start with you and your family. Is that a deal? And Moses says, no, actually, Numbers 14, but now I pray, let the power of God be great, just as you have declared, God. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion, forgiving iniquity and transgression, that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon their children, the third and fourth generation. But did you catch the beginning? Now Moses wisely works in justice and forgiveness, which is also part of God's character and nature. But this statement now is how God has described himself is exactly how we are supposed to know him. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and devotion. This phrase is handed down. It's used by the psalmist. It's used by other prophets. In the Psalms, King David says this, one of my favorites, Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. If anybody ever asks you how to describe the God you believe in, this is your God. This is him. This is who he is. And leave it to the worshipers from the Psalms to remind us of something else about God's character. David works in the word abundance, abounding. If God is merciful, if God is full of grace and truth and loving kindness, then he's got more than enough of all of those things. He's got enough to go around. Let me add a little wrinkle to your prayer life, if you could, something that I've learned over the years. When you're going to God and you're praying about something, you're desperate about something, or just on a daily basis, do what the psalmist does. Do what Moses did and remind God who he is. Because when you remind God who he is, it will remind you of exactly who he is. It will remind you of his holiness, that he has got all that you need, that he is exactly 
who you need him to be. He is exactly who you think he is. And that's a problem for Jonah. Who God says he is, this description that we've known since the time of Moses, is Jonah's biggest problem. He wants God to be other than this. He wants God to be different. He wants justice. He wants these people to be obliterated. Jonah does not want God to be himself. He doesn't want slow to anger. He wants swift to anger. He wants demolition. I don't know if you notice, but in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah doesn't give like a long sermon to try to get these people to come to repentance. I mean, after the whole trip through the Mediterranean and being vomited up on dry land, you would think we would get like a powerful sermon, turn your hearts, change your mind, all the things. If you go back to Jonah chapter 3, you get about eight words. In the English Bible, as I counted them, you get eight words. Hey, y'all should repent or God's going to, you know. So, yeah, I'll see y'all later. That's it. I mean, maybe there's more than that. Maybe he pleaded with the people to come to repentance and believe in God. But I don't think he did. Do you? He didn't want repentance. He doesn't want revival. He doesn't want God to be who he knows him to be for these people. He would rather die than see the kingdom of God come to Nineveh. You know who calls the people to repentance? King of Nineveh. I mean, he hears this little eight-word phrase, this little eight-word message, and his heart is changed. And the king covers himself in sackcloth and ashes and says, we need to repent. And a revival broke out among a people that would have made the ancient Romans blush. This is one of the most brutal and violent people in all of history. And God turned it around with a mediocre prophet and an eight-word sermon, but with a king who would repent. Friends, I know the heart of your leadership here and of my heart for revival. We're planting a church in Scotland. There's more recorded revivals in Scotland than any other country in history and today it's only 1% Christian. It baffles the mind what's happened here. Un absolutely unbelievable. And we're praying and we're seeking God, and I hope as a church that we're continuing to grow, and I know that you are in prayer and seeking his face and coming together, these, these gatherings that are happening once a month in your small groups, in all the places that you can. Yes, pray and seek God's face, but can I tell you, prayer is not the, the essential ingredient for revival. And I'm not diminishing it even one iota. But Jesus didn't say pray and the kingdom of heaven will be at hand. Jesus said repent and the kingdom of heaven will be at hand. Without repentance, there can never be revival. Which is why so many times revivals start on the edges. Because as leaders, a lot of times, the leaders aren't necessarily... And I'm not criticizing the guys here, believe me. The leaders are not the ones who necessarily are going to be the ones to step up and confess sin and be vulnerable. And so most of the time, revival starts with the repentance on the edges. But can I just tell you something? If you want revival to come to your life and to your home and to the places that you care about the most, you say, God, it starts right here. It starts in my heart. And it doesn't just come from, from more prayer and getting up earlier or staying up later or all of those things. 
It comes from when you're praying, asking God, say, God, search me, know me. Is there anything in my life that needs to be fixed, that needs to be taken care of? And when it comes to a holy God, who can stand? And when he lays it on your heart, out of his love for you, repent, confess sin. Men, confess it to your wives and to your children. Students, if, if, if mom and dad are perfect and they have no sin, then you confess sin. Go before the Lord. Listen, I'm, before I stand up on this stage and, and every day, I mean, I haven't even wo- barely woken up this morning. And one of the first things I'm doing in prayer is confessing sin. I'm asking God, God, search me and know me. He's like, you need to, you remember that? I'm like, yeah, Lord, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. But with repentance, the essential ingredient, there is always revival. And when it breaks out, Jonah is so upset, he asked to die. This guy's such a knucklehead. Jonah chapter 4, verse 3, he actually asked God if he can die. I would rather die than watch these people put their faith and trust in you. But the, I'm going to stop making fun of Jonah. But the, Lord, but the Lord said to him, do you have a good reason to be angry? This is a rhetorical question from the God of the universe. The answer is no. But I'm asking you the question to remind you that I am God and that you are not. And then Jonah, he's outside the city now. He basically decides to pull up a chair. I mean, Jonah now, he's outside of Nineveh, and it doesn't seem like he knows what's happened. It doesn't seem like he knows that the king has repented and there's sackcloth and there's ashes. He doesn't seem to know about revival in the city. He's still hoping for destruction. So he's got his lawn chair, and he's pulled a beverage out of his Yeti cooler, and he is, he's sitting up with his feet up, and he's hoping to watch somebody take these people out. He does what Israelites have done for years. He, he built a, a booth. And it's basically like kind of building a tent outside, taking palm fronds and branches and and building a space for yourself. The difference is that you you leave the space at the top open. It's a reminder of the wandering of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. My goodness. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is a first in the story of Jonah. It's happy Jonah. He's happy. God has taken care. Whew, it's hot in here. God has taken care of my shade. He's given me some shade so that I can enjoy watching people be obliterated. Isn't God good? This is awesome. God has made my life more comfortable. Bless his heart. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, he can do this, that attacked the plant so that it withered. And then when the sun rose, God added an east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Happy Jonah has left the building. The next time you're at the beach or somewhere and you say, it is just so hot, I feel like I could die, I want you to remember Jonah. 
And I, I want you to remember how silly you are for saying that in the first place. He's just uncomfortable now. And in fairness, God did turn up the heat a little bit with the wind and, and having the worm eat, eat the plant. And God asked this rhetorical question once again. But this time, this man has the brashness to answer. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, God, as a matter of fact, I do. Come on, look at, listen to this guy. I am angry enough to die. Now, before we make too much fun of him, some of you have had this conversation with God, haven't you? Some of you have had this kind of reaction and expressed this kind of emotion to God just because something didn't go your way. It could have been worse than that. Somebody might have hurt you. Some of you have been cheated on and betrayed, left. I mean, some of you have experienced some awful things, abuse. You've, you've aggrieved a loss, and you're just like, God, I just don't, just don't want to be here anymore. But can I tell you, Jonah doesn't have any of those reasons. It's just hot. And Jonah's not getting his way. How does God respond to us when we're just being so ungrateful and more concerned about our way than his way? Verse 10 just amazes me. The Lord says this, Jonah, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you didn't cause to grow, which came up overnight and it perished overnight. Let me tell you what I notice about this verse. In your small groups this week, you might notice something completely different and that's okay. But here, here's what I notice about the character and nature of God in this moment. It's his patience and his grace. His patience and his grace toward this disrespectful, ungrateful man. I mean, God just points some things out to him, but he's so patient with him. He's so patient with us, isn't he? This is how I know I still need to grow in Christ. Because if you cut me off in traffic, I might look at you a certain way. But God doesn't give Jonah a dirty look. He says, Jonah, and he points some things out to him. Jonah, I know you love the plant. I know you care for the well-being of the plant for less than 24 hours. But I want to remind you that all the good, the good thing that happened in that moment, it was, it was me. It was the work of God. This moment of the plant growing and flourishing and then, and then dying, it reminds me of a declaration that comes from the book of Job. After Job had lost all his possessions and family, he says in Job 1.21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, all that I have in me, all the good in me, anything that I might accomplish is from you. And if you take away my home and my possessions and my reputation for your name's sake, then blessed be the name of the Lord. I wasn't going to read the last verse of the book. I was just going to tell you about it. That doesn't seem fair after four weeks of study. So let's go ahead and punctuate this. And it's God himself that's speaking in verse 11. Jonah, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also so much cattle, so much innocence. God says, if I want to move from anger to favor, I'm allowed to do it. I'm God, I can do it. Throughout the book of Jonah, Nineveh is referred to as that great city. 
And yes, I do think it, it has to do with the size. It has to do with the amount of people there. 120,000 would be a massive population in the ancient world. But I think more than anything else, God keeps using this word great over and over again to remind Jonah how he feels about these people. He knows every hair on every head and every name of every man and woman and child just like he still does today. He sees you. He knows what's going on. He knows where you've been. He knows what happens in the light. He knows what happens in the dark. He knows the very thoughts in your head. He knows all of it. And he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is your God. And for us as Christ followers, to imitate the, the character and nature of God is to realize we don't walk past or drive past a person that is not seen by God. I mean, it's not only true for us, it's true for everyone we come in contact with. You've never read a news article about a person that God doesn't have a plan and purpose for their lives, every single one of them. You've never cheered for an athlete or watched an actor or danced along to a song of any genre where God didn't create that person with that creative capacity out of his love for them. You've never met a person from any background or ethnicity or part of town that God doesn't love just as much as he loves you. Jonah, do you get this yet? Do you get this yet? My grace is for everyone. It is sufficient for everyone, even some of the most awful people in history. You might be thinking about yourself or about somebody else the way Jonah thought about the Assyrians. God, these people are vile. These people are disgusting. And yet the God of mercy and compassion and grace wants to see them repent and turn and follow him. You're never too far gone for this God. Oh, and it's all of our story. Because while we were still sinners, or let's say while we were still enemies of God, what did Christ do? He laid down his life, and he died for us. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's the God Jonah always thought he was. And he's the God he has always said he was. And he's kept his word and kept his promises over and over again. Oh, what do you need him to be right now? What do you need him to be abounding in today? With somebody in your family, in your life, what, what do they need today? I, instead of going through all the scriptures, just I read them for us this week. Let me just go through some of the things that God says about himself or that's said about him in his word. He's the faithful God who keeps his promises and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He's the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. He is holy, and, in, and he keeps his promises, and in Jesus they are all yes and amen. He searches all hearts. He knows every plan. 
He sustains those who are on their sickbed. He is a shepherd, a healer, a forgiver. He renews, he satisfies, he crowns with love. He is abundant in kindness and wisdom and honor and strength. He does not change, and from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He's got exactly what you need. He is the God who he says he is. He's the God you need him to be. And he's the God that can be trusted no matter what might come your way. So what does this mean for your life? today. All things are possible for you. Oh, and I know there's some of you sitting in the room or watching online. You don't believe it. He can't possibly be that God for me because it just feels wrong. It just feels wrong that he would favor me and give me grace this way. It just feels wrong that I would be a recipient of mercy. And that with this God is what is so right about him. And maybe you're, maybe you're here today and God has, has put some act of obedience on your heart. And it may be just something simple. It may be something small. It may be an act of kindness or it may be a job change or it may be an initiative. It may be something larger who knows what it will be. It could be moving to the other side of the world and planting a church. It doesn't matter what it is today. It's not your name on the line. It's his name on the line. And he always comes through and delivers on his promises and on his word. He's the God you need him to be. And every moment and every day is the God you hope for. The God you need, the God you always thought he was. Would you pray with me? Oh, here today, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would deliver on his word that it never returns void. And whatever it is, however you come to this room or come to this broadcast today, that you know you can be confident that he will meet you there. If you're here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. One of the amazing things we've learned over these last few weeks studying Jonah is that this imperfect man shows us what salvation would look like hundreds of years later. And Jesus uses him as an example to describe his death and resurrection. There is nobody that God can't use. There's nobody his grace is not enough for. So if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, Today, you can reach out to God. You can pray. You can confess belief in him. Jason, at the end of the service, is going to let you know more about how to take your next step, become a follower of Jesus. I don't know if you're here today. I, and When I was talking about repentance, maybe it just made you uncomfortable. It, it, it makes me uncomfortable sometimes. Can I just tell you? Oh, but I believe that God wants revival to come to this land and to this world. And I know what the necessary ingredient is. I wonder if you want it, if you would allow it to begin with you in your house, around your table, before a holy God. Oh, maybe he's put something on your heart, a person, a place, whatever it may be. Would you stand with confidence and say, God, I say yes. I say yes because I know as I move forward, you are going to prove yourself to be exactly who I thought you were. 
Oh, somebody's crossing a line right now. I can't wait to see how it unfolds. God, do your work in the hearts and lives of your people like only you can. You are great, and we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for tuning in for today's message. If you want to dig deeper into what you just heard, consider checking out our Next Steps podcast. Every Monday, we'll have a practical conversation surrounding Sunday's message and talk through how we can apply it to our daily lives. Along the way, we're going to tackle other tough questions and topics that will help strengthen your walk with God. Whether you're new to the faith or you're a longtime follower of Christ, there's a next step to take in your own story. Just search for Westridge Church Next Steps Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit westridge.com backslash podcast.